Hello, welcome to I Have So Many Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane inquiries and interrogatories. I am your host, Brian Watson. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps bring in new listeners as I work work toward establishing my cult of personality. This show is my own personal little vanity project, my stroking of my fragile male ego. Here is how you can get in touch with the show. The email address is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is at IHaveSoManyPod. Or you can look up I Have So Many Questions podcast in the search function of your Twitter app. The Facebook page is Facebook.com forward slash I Have So Many Questions podcast. The show is hosted on Anchor.fm and through their mobile app. The show is streaming on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Pocket Casts, Breaker, Radio Public, and iTunes and Apple Podcasts. So just about anywhere where you get your podcasts, that's where you'll find the show. In the aftermath of the mega episode, two-part mega episode of Star Wars, where I'm sure I bored people to tears, we're going to go back 180 degrees in the other direction, only because I haven't seen an Avengers Endgame yet. We're going to talk about we. I am going to talk about some politics, and in particular, jumping into, so to speak, the Mueller report. If you've been paying attention for just a little bit, you probably know if you've watched the news or read the newspaper or just looked on the internet for a minute, really just about anywhere on the internet for a minute. Last month in April, the long-awaited Mueller report from the special counsel's office of the DOJ was released. This was the almost two-year inquiry into Russian uh, interference in the 2016 presidential election, as well as an investigation into the activities or the interactions of the Trump campaign with Russians during that election, as well as Donald Trump's, President Donald Trump's actions as president in regards to possible obstruction of justice of the said special counsel's investigation. As you may recall, back in May, I believe of 17, Herr President, the the Orange Menace, fired FBI Director James Comey under false pretenses uh, through a member based on a memorandum drafted by one uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein under the false pretense that it was Comey's mishandling of his investigation into Hillary Clinton's email server in 2016 that warranted six months after the presidential election and four months after Herr President had become president, it was Comey's actions in regards to his handling of the Hillary Clinton investigation in 2016, his unspecified handling of that investigation that prompted Herr President to fire him under the recommendation of the Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein and the Attorney General Jeff Beauregard Sessions. As a result of that termination, and more specifically, Trump shortly after 
the firing of James Comey under false pretenses. Trump went on NBC News during an interview with Lester Holt and basically said that the reason he fired Comey was because of the, of the Russia thing. Comey was investigating Russian interference, was undertaking a counterintelligence operation, uh, which is within the purview of the FBI, particularly when it involves uh, domestic espionage or um, foreign interference in domestic and in domestic affairs. That falls within the purview of the FBI to conduct the counterintelligence investigations. Trump fires Comey, goes under the pretense of Comey's actions in the handling of the Hillary Clinton email server investigation from 2016, even though it was Comey's actions in the handling of Hillary Clinton's email server in 2016 that large that probably had a significant impact with getting Trump over the finish line, given the exceptionally narrow margin of victory that he had in that election. But Trump fires Comey under false pretenses, and then goes on national television and says, yeah, I did it because of Russia, tells the Russians that he did it because of Russia. And tells the Russians privately that immediately after Comey got fired, that now that the whole Comey, that now the whole Russia thing would just go away. That didn't happen. Hair president, the orange menace, his actions anyway, prompt Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein to select a special counsel to investigate Russian interference in the election, to basically take over where Comey, where Comey had been. And the FBI investigation and Rosenstein did this because the attorney general, Jeff Beauregard Sessions had recused himself against the wishes of the orange menace, Herr president had Sessions had recused himself because Sessions had been elbows deep in the Trump campaign throughout and anything involving the Trump campaign or any investigation into the Trump campaign would would be an automatic conflict of interest for Jeff Beauregard Sessions. The Orange Menace, Hair President, was none too pleased about this recusal, and as we'll talk about probably a little bit further down the line, impacted Hair President's judgment in certain at certain moments in time throughout the past two years. So. The special counsel appointed is former FBI director Robert Mueller, who was the FBI director during the Bush years and early in the Obama administration until James Comey took over. Mueller had an impeccable record, um, was unimpeachable in every respect, although Herr President, the Orange Menace, somehow tried to implicate Mueller in some sort of unspecified conflicts of interest tried to impugn his character on multiple occasions because that's what Hare President does. He impugns the character of anyone and everyone that he feels the need to impugn at any particular moment in time, regardless of who they are. Mueller conducts his investigation, does no TV appearances of any kind, no interviews of any kind, does not speak a word publicly or, for that matter, privately, as far as we know of, for the 22 months of his investigation. And then in April, concluded that investigation, submitting a 448-page report to the Attorney General, who reviews it over the course of a weekend, although I'm not sure how he's able to do that unless he reads like my wife does, or he treated the Mueller report much as anybody treated a newly uh, released Harry Potter book a few years ago. 
Mueller turns in his 448-page report with executive summaries already already completed, turns them into the attorney general. The attorney general then writes a four-page summary, quote unquote, to the Congress, basically stating that the Mueller report absolves the Trump campaign of any involvement in Russian interference in the election and uh, determines that there was no conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russian agents who were actively interfering in the election. But when it comes to the question of obstruction, the attorney general says that the Mueller report neither condemns nor exonerates Herr President, the Orange Menace, from of the uh, of the charges of obstruction of justice. But the attorney general decides on his own in the same letter that the president cannot commit obstruction of justice as there was no other as there was no there was no finding of any underlying crime for Herr President, the Orange Menace, to obstruct justice over. Basically, because Barr concludes rather um, controversially and conveniently that because Donald Trump did not commit a crime, he cannot, then obstruction of justice cannot, he cannot be charged with obstruction of justice as a crime. In order to commit obstruction of justice, you had to have, you have to be obstructing an investigation into an actual crime being committed which is very circular logic because the special counsel's office was investigating the possibility of conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russian actors interfering in the election. So there was an investigation into possible criminal activity, though no criminal activity was found in regards to conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russian agents. But because the ultimate conclusion was no crime, or to be more precise, no charges to be filed for a crime, which does not mean that a crime did not occur. It just means that the prosecutor, that the prosecutor has ex- exercised discretion and conclude in determining or deciding not to pursue charges. It doesn't mean that a crime wasn't committed. It just means that the prosecutor has determined that the likelihood of success of a prosecution is low enough to warrant not pursuing charges at all. But Barr concludes that because there was n- there were no charges brought for a an underlying crime, therefore the president could not commit the act of obstruction of justice or could not obstruct justice if there was no actual crime to obstruct or try to obstruct the investigation of even though there was an active investigation into into potential crime committed by the Trump campaign. Though probably not expressed clearly on my part, the Attorney General conveniently applied very circular logic. Then, the Attorney General pledges to release the Mueller report to the Congress and to the public after he has reviewed the report for information that needs to be redacted for various reasons, national security reasons, counterintelligence reasons, grand jury, grand jury reasons. It takes 20, I believe 27 days 
for the attorney general for the Department of Justice to complete that review of the report and put those redactions in place before the report is released. When the report is released, there is a wide variety of... um, Actually, wide variety is not a, not the best way to put this. When the report is released, there are obvious contradictions between the findings in the Mueller report itself and in the four-page summary that the Attorney General submitted to Congress 27 days earlier, such as, and it, became, it becomes pretty clear that um, the Attorney General's four-page letter was spin on behalf of the President. But before the report is even released, on the day that it is supposed to be released, about an hour or two before the report is released to the Congress, the Attorney General holds a press conference. And in the press conference, the Attorney General, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer for the United States, goes before the public and the press to explain, to justify Donald Trump, Herr President, the Orange Menace, Donald Trump's mindset, his rationale, his his state of mind, almost as if Bill William Barr was Donald Trump's personal attorney, William Barr proceeds to explain Donald Trump's mindset and state of mind to justify his behavior, particularly his behavior in regards to the obstruction of justice allegations, which are about to be laid bare in the Mueller report. So again, William Barr, the attorney general, the chief law enforcement officer of the United States is laying down cover fire for Donald Trump because Barr knows what's in that report and Barr knows what's about to come out. And Barr is trying to protect the president of the United States against clear obstruction of justice allegations where the special counsel has laid bare 10 to 11 examples of obstruction of justice. The report comes out. Everybody starts reading it. Now, I'm not going to... um, Obviously, I'm not going to read 448 pages of the Mueller report to you in this podcast. I will make a couple of recommendations, though. The Lawfare podcast has been, to me anyway, essential listening for throughout this entire two-year period. Uh, Lawfare is a blog and podcast that is run by Benjamin Wittes and Susan Hennessy, primarily. They were former... DOJ lawyers or they worked in the government as lawyers, Lawfare focuses a great deal, almost primarily on national security law. They go, they do, uh, they cover a lot of cybersecurity. They've covered the Russian uh, interference in the election um, and just about every aspect that's gone with that from investigating Trump, uh, the, the collusion investigation, collusion, quote unquote, even though their collusion is not an actual crime, but they've covered the entire Russia-Trump thing from the beginning. And they've done a very good job, I think, a very even-handed job, although they acknowledge that they you know, they do have a bias, but they've done a pretty even-handed job of covering this as developments have occurred. They'd have a, an episode of their podcast about once a week, maybe a couple times a week, depending on if there was new uh, revelations, and they would bring on former 
U.S. attorneys, people who have prosecuted former government prosecutors, federal prosecutors, and they would go into for about an hour, go into all kinds of things that if the the, if the special counsel, when the special counsel filed uh, indictments against the uh, the IRA, the Internet Research As- uh, Association or Re- Internet Research Agency, the uh, the uh, the Russian social media group um, that was doing all that f- uh, fake social media stuff. When the indictments came down to that group and, and individuals associated with that group, including an oligarch, they did they would cover that the uh, the Manafort indictments, the Manafort trial. The Roger Stone indictment, um, the indictments of the uh, the the GRU agents, the Russian secret, the Russian intelligence service agents, um, Guccifer 2.0 and all the, you know, the ones that hacked into the DNC and the Clinton campaign and fed all that information to WikiLeaks. Every time that something new developed, they would cover it. What Lawfare has done. And I found this extremely helpful. There are two volumes to the special counsel's report, two parts, basically. The first part deals with the Russian interference aspect, what the Russians did and how they did it interfering in the election. And then that that also includes the investigation into the Trump campaign and whether there was any conspiracy or attempted conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russians to benefit Hair President, the Orange Menace. The second volume deals with the, the, the obstruction investigation. So you have two volumes to the Mueller report. Mueller's team wrote executive summaries for each volume. These executive summaries were intended to be, as we found out later, in a letter that was written uh, to Bill Barr after he had dis- released his four page, his own four page summary, Mueller objected in writing to the attorney general privately on more than one occasion, objected to how the, the attorney general had represented the findings of the Mueller report. And in those those letters that Mueller had sent to the attorney general, Mueller stated that the executive summaries, which had been written by his team, as part of writing their report, those executive summaries were intended to be released to the public. So when Mueller turns in the 448-page report to the Attorney General, he writes he writes these executive summaries, which do not require any redactions because the team has already applied or the, his team has already – they've taken – no sensitive information would, is put into those executive summaries basically that would require a redaction. So therefore, the executive summaries were written to be released to the public and to the Congress before the full 448-page report could be released because they knew there was going to have to be redactions done in that report. So Mueller tells Barr in this letter, in a series of letters, about the executive summaries and what they were for. Barr does not release those executive summaries. He writes his own little four-page report because he wants to control the narrative of the Mueller report. What Lawfare did when the Mueller report was finally released, Lawfare read and recorded the reading of the executive summaries for the two volumes. This was done by Benjamin Wittes. The two, the executive summaries for the two volumes take about an hour total to listen to. So there's one podcast, an episode of Lawfare, and I strongly suggest you go and subscribe to the Lawfare podcast, 
find that episode where they have read verbatim the executive summaries for each volume of the Bola Report. It takes about an hour to listen to both summaries. And that'll give you a pretty good idea of the findings of the Mueller report. Now, from what I also understand, Vice News has, and I think it's either on SoundCloud or someplace else. It might be on YouTube. Vice News recorded a reading of the entire 448-page Mueller report. I don't know about the end notes or the, uh, the, uh, the addendums. I don't know about that. But the narrative Vice News read in multiple parts with multiple people of their staff. They read the recorded a reading of the entire Mueller report, which I have not listened to yet. I've not read the Mueller report yet. But if you're wanting to read the report in its entirety, Vice News is taking care of that for you in almost an audiobook format. Now, from what I understand, the Mueller report is the number one bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list and on, and on Amazon. It would not surprise me if you could find an audiobook version of it on Audible or maybe iTunes or something like that. But I would strongly suggest that you check out, definitely check out the executive, the executive summary, either read it or listen to the reading of it on the Lawfare podcast or go to um, or find Vice News's uh, reading of the entire Mueller report. I'm pretty sure it's on, I'm pretty sure it's on SoundCloud, but what I'm going to do, I'm not really going to beyond what I've already done. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read several things and I'm, I may provide a little bit of commentary, but I'm not going to really try because I think I honestly, I don't think spin is required here. I don't think interpretation is really required here from everything that I have heard and read about either in the report itself or as it's been reviewed. Everything seems pretty straightforward and it's pretty clear. I will give you my two conclusions. One, was there conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russians? No, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. The reason there wasn't any um, conspiracy was because the Trump people were too stupid to know how to effectively conspire with Russians. Was there collusion? Yes. Is collusion a crime? No. Is it is collusion with a foreign with a foreign government or foreign entity to influence um, or to uh, to affect the outcome of an election in your favor a good thing? Absolutely not. On obstruction of justice, Donald Trump should be impeached. He clearly obstructed justice, even if he wasn't successful. The law is clear that even the attempt of obstruction, whether successful or not, the attempt constitutes obstruction. And there are so many instances, incidents in the report, outlined in the report, to support by themselves or on the whole that Donald Trump was did everything humanly possible to try to obstruct this investigation and the only thing that saved him were that the people around him were a lot smarter than he was. He was saved from himself by his people, by the people around him. Problem, I don't think they were trying to save him as much as they knew they were going to go to jail if they did what he asked them to. Everybody thinks that everybody focuses when it's Watergate or it's Iran-Contra or if it's Whitewater, the Lewinsky affair. Um 
everybody focuses on the who was the president at the time. Well, nothing ever happened to those guys, but everybody around them went to jail. Everybody around Nixon went to jail. H.R. Haldeman, his chief of staff, jail. John Mitchell, jail. A whole bunch of other people whose names all of a sudden I cannot remember. They went to jail. A whole bunch of people, Reagan's people, Casper um, Weinberger, jail or convicted. Oliver North, convicted. Bud McFarland, I think, went to jail. A whole bunch of people in Reagan's administration went to jail because of Iran-Contra or were convicted because of Iran-Contra. Um, with Clinton, it was Webb's Webster Hubble had nothing to do with Whitewater and had nothing to do with the independent counsel's investigation. But Webb Hubble went to went to jail for uh, billing fraud with the Rose Law Firm in Arkansas. And then I think a couple other people, uh, Jim and Susan McDougal went to jail for uh, for contempt because they refused to testify before the grand jury. So everybody thinks that everybody forgets that uh, the president never gets in trouble, but everybody around him for this type of thing goes to jail. The president can't be indicted while he's in office, but everybody around him sure can. So I'm willing to bet that a lot of the reason why a lot of the things a lot of these things that Trump wanted to happen didn't happen was because the people that he told them to do were smart enough to realize that if they do this, they, not he, are going to go to jail. But these people also at the same time saved Donald Trump from himself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read three things verbatim and I'll provide citations. The first article I'm going to read is from Benjamin Wittes, the uh, editor-in-chief of Lawfare. It's an article that he wrote for The Atlantic, uh, dated April the 29th, 2019. As of the recording, this episode is on uh, the evening of May 7th, 2019. And I'm going to read an article from Benjamin Wittes called Five Things I Learned from the Mueller Report. Then I'm going to, I was happy I was able to find this, although it took a little bit more difficulty than I could, than I expected to find the full thing. The second thing I'm going to read is are the three articles of impeachment drafted against and voted on by the House Judiciary Committee, voted on against Richard Nixon in 1974. And when you read these, when you read the articles and you compare them, what's what's in those articles of impeachment against Nixon and compare them to what's in Ben Wittes' article, and also what's in the Mueller report, it's not hard to see it's not hard to see the parallels. It really isn't. And then the third thing I'm going to read is an article uh, in Real Clear Politics at real realclearpolitics.com in an article written by A. B. Stoddard, dated April the twenty fifth, twenty nineteen, talking about how um, talking about Trump and the GOP. The article's titled Trump, comma, GOP won't act on election interference warnings. Because everybody focuses on Trump's camp, the Trump campaign's actions and um, Trump's actions in terms of obstruction of justice. He is the president of the United States. He's the he consumes all the oxygen in any environment that he's in. He's the world's worst forest fire. He's like that California fire that destroyed that killed a whole bunch of people and destroyed a bunch of man mansions in um, the. Uh, I believe in SoCal. He is that metaphorical forest fire or wildfire, I should say. So everybody focuses on him. What gets lost in this is the the brazen efforts 
by the Russian government and those acting at the behest of the Russian government towards interfering in our elections. In our 2016 elections, uh, the intelligence services and the FBI indicated that they were there was interference in the 2018 elections. There's no, there's no reason to believe that they won't attempt to do something similar in 2020. So I'm going to read these three things and give you the audience, let you kind of take them in, think about them, form your own conclusions, form your own opinions, form your own conclusions. All I would ask is that you maintain an open mind. I, um, my viewpoint on this is pretty clear and my biases are pretty clear from the inception of this show. I have my disdain for Donald Trump is well established. I refer to him on multiple occasions in this episode as uh, the orange menace, which is again, is not a term I came up with. Um, it was a term of endearment <laughs> that I originally heard from a Republican strategist, Mike Murphy on his podcast, Radio Free GOP, which was a voice of the resistance during the campaign. And then he shut down the podcast for an extended period of time once the election was over and Trump had won. So my disdain for Trump is well established and um, he's a despicable human being. He's the, the worst human being we've ever had that's ever existed. No, there, but there again, there, that doesn't mean there's anything redeemable about him at all. So my viewpoint is clear on this. All I would ask is that you listen to this information, maintain an open mind. I understand you're going to have biases. You're either going to be pro-Trump or anti-Trump, or you're going to have other biases against the media. Um, since I'm reading articles, online articles from uh, respected publications or from respected writers, you may I'm refer to them that way. You may not feel that way about them either personally or based on simply the uh, classification of occupation that they inhabit. But listen to the readings, think about them, do your own investigating, draw your own conclusions, provide your own feedback to me about this episode. As always, comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns are greatly and strongly appreciated and also may be used in future episodes of the show. The first article, this, is, uh, this was published in The Atlantic. Um, it's dated April the 29th, 2019, so you can look it up online to read it for yourself. The title of the article is Five Things I Learned from the Mueller Report. The article is written, the subtitle is A Careful Reading of the Dense Document Delivers Some Urgent Insights. This is written by the author of this article, is ben Benjamin Wittes the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, which, the Lawfare, which Lawfare is affiliated with. I spent the week after the release of, the, of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report going through it section by section and writing a kind of diary of the endeavor. My goal was less to summarize the report than to force myself to think about each factual, legal, and analytical portion of Mueller's discussion which covers a huge amount of ground. Here are five conclusions I drew from the exercise. The president committed crimes. 
There is no way around it. Attorney General William Barr's efforts to clear President Donald Trump, both in his original letter and in his press conference the morning of the report's release, are wholly unconvincing when you actually spend time with the document itself. Mueller does not accuse the president of crimes. He doesn't have to. But the facts he recounts describe criminal behavior. They describe criminal behavior even if we allow the president's and the attorney general's argument that facially valid exercises of presidential authority cannot be obstructions of justice. They do this because they describe obstructive activity that does not involve facially valid exercises of presidential power at all. Consider only two examples. The first is the particularly ugly section concerning Trump's efforts to get then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions to, quote, unrecuse, unquote. The alleged facts are simple enough. According to Mueller, the president asked Corey Lewandowski to convey a message to Sessions. Side note, Corey Lewandowski was Trump's former campaign manager. He ran the early portions of the campaign until uh, Paul Manafort came in and then Manafort was replaced by Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon. Back to the article. According to Mueller, the president asked Corey Lewandowski to convey a message to Sessions. It was a request that Sessions reassert control over the special counsel's investigation, make a speech in which he would declare that the president didn't do anything wrong, and that the special counsel's investigation of him was, quote, very unfair, unquote, and restrict the special counsel's investigation to interfere in future elections. Future is italicized in the article. Lewandowski asked a White House staffer to deliver the message in his place. The staffer in question never did so. A few factors are important to highlight here, all of them aggravating. Lewandowski was not a government employee, so this was not an example of the president exercising his powers to manage the executive branch. Indeed, Trump very specifically did not go through the hierarchy of the executive branch. He tried to get a private citizen to lobby the attorney general on his behalf for substantive outcomes to an investigation in which he had the deepest of personal interests. What's more, the step he asked Lewandowski to press Sessions to take was frankly unethical. Sessions recused himself from the Russia probe because he had an actual conflict of interest in the matter. In other words, the President of the United States recruited a private citizen to procure from the Attorney General of the United States behavior the Attorney General is ethically barred from undertaking. But it gets worse. Because Trump did not merely seek to get Sessions to involve himself in a matter from which he was recused, Trump wanted Sessions both to limit the scope of the investigation and to declare its outcome on the merits with respect to Trump itself. This action would have quite literally and directly obstructed justice, limiting the, ju- limiting the jurisdiction of the special counsel to future elections would have, after all, precluded the indictments Mueller later, later issued for Russia's hacking and social media operations. It would have precluded the prosecutions of Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, Mike Flynn, George Papadopoulos, and Rick Gates as well. 
nor is there any real complexity here with respect to Trump's intent. As Mueller reports, quote, substantial evidence indicates that the president's effort to have Sessions limit the scope of the special counsel's investigation to future election interference was intended to prevent further investigative scrutiny of the president's and his campaign's conduct, unquote. As a criminal matter, this fact pattern seems to me uncomplicated. If true and provable beyond a reasonable doubt, it is unlawful obstruction of justice. Full stop. Another example, Mueller reports that after the news broke that Trump had sought to get then-White House counsel Don McGahn to fire the special counsel, Trump sought to get McGahn to deny the story. He also sought to get him to create an internal record denying the story. McGahn refused. The attempt to get McGahn to write an internal memo disputing the story is the crucial fact here. The president's conduct might otherwise be defended as a mere effort to lie to the press, but one doesn't order the creation of false internal documents for purposes of denying a published story. So the question is, first, whether what Mueller described as Trump's, quote, repeated efforts to get McGahn to create a record denying that the president had directed him to remove the special counsel, unquote, would have, quote, the natural tendency to constrain McGahn from testifying truthfully or to undermine his credibility, unquote, if he told the truth. The second question is whether such a corrupt outcome was specifically intended by the president. Mueller acknowledges that there is, quote, some evidence, unquote, that the president simply thought the story was wrong and proceeding on his memory. But Mueller is pretty clear that the weight of evidence, quote, cuts against that understanding, unquote, though, as always, he stops short of making that judgment explicit. Mueller previously concluded that McGahn's underlying story was amply supported by the evidence. While it's hard to believe, the president would simply have forgotten to an effort to fire Mueller. As to the president's intent, Mueller is pretty unabashed. Quote, substantial evidence indicates that in repeatedly urging McGahn to dispute that he was ordered to have the special counsel terminated, the president acted for the purpose of influencing McGahn's account in order to deflect or prevent scrutiny of the president's conduct toward the investigation. Unquote. Assuming that one believes this could be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, imagining this fact pattern as a count in an indictment is not difficult. It is hard to imagine a plausible defense based on the idea that pressuring an employee to create false government records by way of influencing his ability to tell the truth is within the president's constitutional authority. If one accepts, as I do, Mueller's general reading of the obstruction statutes as applied to official presidential action, there are many more examples. When Trump leaves office, assuming statutes of limitations have not yet run out, someone will have to make the binary assessment, which Mueller did not make, of whether they amount to prosecutable cases. As a historical matter, the report leaves me with little doubt that the president engaged in criminal obstruction of justice on a number of occasions. The president also committed impeachable offenses. Crimes and impeachable offenses are not the same thing, though they are overlapping categories. Some of the most obviously impeachable offenses described in the Mueller report are likely criminal as well. Some may not be. If I were a member of Congress, I would be thinking about which portions of the report describe, in my opinion, the most unacceptable abuses of power. A few stand out to me. 
The first is the circumstances of and run up to the firing of former FBI Director James Comey. While this fact pattern is complicated for criminal purposes, as a matter of impeachment, it's very simple indeed. The President of the United States, seven days after taking office, demanded loyalty from his FBI director. Shortly thereafter, he isolated Comey in order to ask that he drop a sensitive FBI investigation in which Trump had a personal interest. The president then leaned on Comey to make public statements about his own status in the investigation. And when he couldn't get Comey to do that, to do so, excuse me, he recruit he recruited the deputy attorney general to create a pretext for Comey's removal. While there may be viable technical defenses against the criminal charge here, there simply is no plausible way to understand this fact pattern as a good faith exercise of presidential power. It describes a frank abuse of power, a sustained demand for a wholly self-interested investigative outcome, a willingness to disrupt a crucial institution to get that outcome, to to retaliate against an official who would not deliver it, and to set the entire apparatus of the White House to lying about the reason for the action, and the recruitment of senior Justice Department officials to create a pretextual paper trail to support it. I believe this was impeachable conduct at the time. The Mueller report reinforces that belief. Ditto the effort to get Sessions to investigate Hillary Clinton. Mueller does not disentangle this effort from the attempt to get Sessions to reassert control of the Russia investigation. Let's do so here. Even as he was trying to get Sessions to protect him from the FBI, Trump was also trying to induce Sessions to investigate his political opponents. This is not obstruction of justice in any criminal sense. It's rather the opposite of obstruction of justice. It's the initiation of injustice. Initiation of injustice is italicized in the article. So I don't think it's plausibly sound in terms of criminal law. But it is molten core impeachment territory. Consider, the President of the United States was trying to induce the Attorney General of the United States to initiate a criminal investigation based on no known criminal predicate against a private citizen who he happened whom he happened to dislike this was not rhetorical it was not a joke and if it is not unacceptable to congress then no member of congress can say he or she has not was not warned when some future attorney general complies with a presidential request to launch an investigation against such a member of congress a third example is the president's public dance with paul manafort in which he dangled the possibility of a pardon and praised Manafort's bravery for, quote, for not, quote, flipping, unquote, and in which his private counsel allegedly suggested that Manafort would be taken care of. Notably, Trump got what he wanted in this case. Manafort did not end up cooperating to Mueller's satisfaction. Indeed, Mueller concluded that Manafort had breached his plea deal by failing to cooperate and by lying to investigators. So the reality here may well be that the president's obstructive conduct did in fact obstruct the investigation. The president hinted that Manafort should not, quote, flip, unquote, and that he would take care of him. And Manafort acted in a fashion consistent with his relying on those assurances. I think this activity, assuming it can be proved, is criminal. 
It is also a grotesque abuse of power for impeachment purposes. The spectacle of the President of the United States publicly and repeatedly urging witnesses not to cooperate with federal law enforcement and entertaining the notion of using his Article II powers to relieve them of criminal jeopardy or consequences if they do not cooperate is one of the most singular abuses of the entire Trump presidency. Again, one has to ask of Congress what is unacceptable in a president's interaction with an investigation if this conduct is tolerable. In short, the question of the prudential wisdom of impeachment politically may be a hard one for members of Congress, but the impeachability of the conduct described by Mueller is not a close call. This is heartland impeachment material, the sort of conduct the impeachment clauses were written to address. Trump was not complicit in the Russian social media conspiracy. Separating the wheat from the chaff is important, so let's do so. While Trump has a great deal to answer for, Mueller unambiguously clears him, clears in the true sense of the word, of involvement in Russian efforts to interfere in the U.S. election by means of the Internet Research Agency's social media campaign. Yes, the IRA duped some Trump campaign figures into promoting the group's material, but none of those Trump campaign figures appears to have done so deliberately. Mueller's statement that the investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. persons, Mueller's statement that the, quote, investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. persons knowingly and intentionally coordinated with the IRA's interference operations, unquote, is a stronger one than the language he uses elsewhere to indicate that evidence is insufficient, insufficient is italicized in the article, to prove something. Here he actually seems to be saying that the investigation did not produce evidence at all of knowing participation in the Russian scheme by U.S. Persian, US persons. We should take that at face value. The story the report tells is disturbing on its own terms, however. It is a story of failed immunity on the U.S. side to outside interference, and aggressive Russian exploitation of the absence of democratic antibodies to fight off such manipulation. The IRA was able to reach tens of millions of U.S. persons using its social media accounts. It was able to trick prominent people into engaging with and promoting its dummy accounts. It was able to exploit social media companies, and it was able to make a series of contacts with Trump campaign affiliates and to get those figures, plus Trump himself, to engage with and promote social media contact, content that was part of a hostile power's covert efforts to influence the American electorate. Though not intentional or criminal on the U.S. side, this pattern shows a troubling degree of vulnerability on the part of the U.S. political system to outside influence campaigns. The solution to this problem is not obvious. The social media companies obviously have a role to play in better policing their platforms, but some of the solution has to come from individuals, particularly prominent individuals, who need to take more care about sharing on social media any content of, a, of uncertain provenance. That obviously includes the president and his family members and campaign staff. But the problem here is far broader than Trump, and the solution needs to be as well. Trump's complicity in the Russian hacking operation and his, campaign, and his campaign's contacts with the Russians present a more complicated picture. No, Mueller does not appear to have developed evidence that anyone associated with the Trump campaign was involved in the hacking operation itself. And no, the investigation did not find a criminal conspiracy in the veritable blizzard of contacts between Trump world and the Russians. But this is an ugly story for Trump. 
Here's the key point. If there wasn't collusion on the hacking, it sure wasn't for lack of trying. Indeed, the Mueller report makes clear that Trump personally ordered an attempt to obtain Hillary Clinton's emails, and people associated with the campaign pursued this believing they were dealing with Russian hackers. Trump also personally engaged in discussions about coordinating public relations strategy around WikiLeaks releases of hacked emails. At least one person associated with the campaign was in touch directly with the Guccifer 2.0 persona, which is to say with Russian military intelligence. And Donald Trump Jr. was directly in touch with WikiLeaks, from whom he obtained a password to a hacked database. There are reasons none of these incidents amount to crimes. Good reasons in my view, in most cases, viable judgment calls in others. But the picture it all paints of the president's conduct is anything but exonerating. Call it Keystone Collusion. On July 27, 2016, Trump in a speech publicly called for Russia to release Hillary Clinton's missing server emails. Quote, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Unquote. The reference here was not to the hacking the GRU had done over the previous two months, but to the hypothesized compromise of Clinton's private email server sometime earlier an event that there is no particular reason to believe took place at all. The GRU, like many Trump supporters, took Trump seriously, but not literally. Quote, within approximately five hours of Trump's announcement, unquote, Mueller writes, quote, GRU officers targeted for the first time Clinton's personal office, unquote. In other words, the GRU appears to have responded to Trump's call for Russia to release a set of Clinton's emails the Russians likely never hacked by launching a new wave of attacks aimed at other emails. Trump has since insisted that he was joking in that speech, but the public comments mirrored private orders. After the speech, quote, Trump asked individuals affiliated with his campaign to find the deleted Clinton emails, unquote, the report states. Quote, Michael Flynn recalled that Trump made this request repeatedly, and Flynn subsequently contacted multiple people in an effort to obtain the emails. Unquote. Two of the people contacted by Flynn were Barbara Ledeen and Peter Smith. Ledeen had been working on recovering the emails for a while already, Mueller reports. Smith, only weeks after Trump's speech, began, sprang into action himself on the subject. Ledeen ultimately obtained emails that proved, to, that proved to be not authentic. Smith, for his part, quote, drafted multiple emails stating or intimating that he was in contact with Russian hackers, unquote. Though Mueller notes that the investigation, quote, did not establish that Smith was in contact with Russian hackers or that Smith, Ledeen, or other individuals in touch with the Trump campaign ultimately obtained the deleted Clinton emails, unquote. In other words, Trump wasn't above dealing with Russian hackers to get Hillary Clinton's emails. The reason there's no foul here, legally speaking, is only that the whole thing was a wild conspiracy theory. The idea that the missing 30,000 e emails had been retrieved was never more than conjecture, after all. The idea that they would be, that they would be easily retrievable from the so-called dark web was a kind of fantasy. In other words, even as a real hacking operation was going on, Trump personally, his campaign, and his campaign followers were actively attempting to collude with a fake hacking operation over fake emails. 
Then there are the more than 100 pages detailing Russian contacts and links with the Trump campaign and business. Mueller looks at these through a legal lens. He's a prosecutor, after all, looking to answer legal questions. But I found myself reading it through a very different lens. Patriotism. Mueller concludes after detailing the contacts that, quote, the investigation established multiple links between Trump campaign officials and individuals tied to the Russian government. Those links included Russian offers of assistance to the campaign. In some instances, the campaign was receptive to the offer, while in other instances, the campaign officials shied away. Ultimately, the investigation did not establish that the campaign coordinated or conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities, unquote. It is not hard to see how he came to the conclusion that charges for conspiracy would not be plausible based on the contacts Mueller describes. For starters, a number of the individual incidents that looked deeply suspicious when they first came to light do look more innocent after investigation. These include the change in the Republican Party's platform on Ukraine at the Republican National Convention, for example, as well as Jeff Sessions and other campaign officials' various encounters with the omnipresent former Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. On these matters, Mueller does seem to have found that nothing untoward happened. Even those incidents that don't look innocent after investigation don't look like criminal conspiracy either. So, for example, George Papadopoulos found out about the, Russian, about the Russians having, quote, dirt, unquote, on Clinton in the form of, quote, thousands of emails, unquote. But he does not appear to have reported this to the campaign, though he was trying to arrange a Trump-Putin meeting at the time. Even if he had reported it to the campaign, the Trump campaign's being aware of the Russian possession of hacked Clinton emails wouldn't constitute a conspiracy. The campaign, after all, never did anything about it. The Trump Tower meeting is one of the most damning single episodes discussed. The campaign's senior staff took a meeting with Russian representatives who promised disparaging information on Clinton as part of the Russian government's support of Trump. Yet even here... While the campaign showed eagerness to benefit from Russian activity, the meeting, the meeting was unproductive and nothing came of it. Where exactly is the conspiracy supposed to be? I can think of a number of possible answers to this question, and Mueller entertained one related to campaign finance violations, but I certainly can't argue that an indictment is an obvious call. So, too, the extended negotiations over Trump Tower Moscow. The investigation makes clear that Trump, who spent the campaign insisting he had, quote, nothing to do with Russia, unquote, was lying through his teeth the whole time. He was, in fact, seeking Russian presidential support for his business deal through June 2016. But it's not illegal to have contacts with Russians, including Putin's immediate staff, to try to buy a building or to try to build a building. Excuse me. And it's not obvious how this sort of, quote, collusion, unquote, with the Russian government could amount to coordination or conspiracy on concurrent Russian electoral interference. At the same time, Mueller here is far more reticent than he is about the IRA operation. He does not clear the president or his campaign. There are, in my view, two major reasons for the difference between his conclusions on these matters and his conclusions about the IRA operation, for which he affirmatively finds no evidence of conspiracy. The first is the sheer volume of contacts, which is truly breathtaking. 
These contacts were taking place even as it was publicly revealed that the Russians had been behind the Democratic Party hacks, even as the releases of emails took place, even as the incumbent administration was publicly attributing the attacks to Russia, even as through the transition, the outgoing administration was sanctioning Russia for those attacks. The brazen quality of meeting serial meeting serially with an adversary power while it is attacking the country and lying about it constantly militates against a stronger conclusion that there is no evidence of conspiracy, at least not in the absence of solid answers to every question. And not every question got a solid answer. The Mueller team was clearly left unsatisfied that it understood all of Carter Page's activities while he was in Moscow in July 2016, for example. Similarly, the office reports in its discussion of the Trump Tower meeting that Donald Trump Jr., quote, declined to be voluntarily interviewed by the office, unquote. This line is followed by a redaction for grand jury information, raising the question of whether Trump Jr. asserted his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination or indicated an intent to do so. And then there's Paul Manafort. Mueller is candid that he was unable to determine why Manafort was having campaign polling data shared with his longtime employee, Konstantin Kalimnik. Mueller was also unable to determine what to make of repeated conversations between Kalimnik, who has alleged ties to Russian intelligence, and Manafort about a Ukrainian peace plan highly favorable to Russia. And while Mueller could not find evidence of Manafort's passing the peace plan along to other people in the campaign, he notes that the office was unable to, quote, to gain access to all of Manafort's electronic communications, unquote, because, quote, messages were sent using encryption applications, unquote, and that Manafort lied to the office about the peace plan. As for the polling data, quote, the office could not assess what Kalimnik, parentheses, or others he may have gotten it to, did with it, unquote. So while the office did not establish coordination in this area, it was clearly left with residual suspicions and with unanswered questions. In other words, on the legal side, the evidence isn't all that close to establishing coordination in the sense that conspiracy law would recognize either on the hacking side or with respect to the contacts. But the positive enthusiasm for engaging Russian hackers over emails, the volume of contacts, the lies, and the open questions make it impossible to say no evidence of conspiracy exists. The real interesting question here is not legal. It is, it is historical and political. How should we understand the relationship between Trump and Russia? Put another way, what is the story these contacts tell if it's not one of active coordination? They surely aren't, in the aggregate, innocent. They aren't normal business practice for a presidential campaign. What are they? For what it's worth, here's what I see in the story Mueller has told on Trump engagement with the Russians over the hacking. I see a group of people for whom partisan polarization wholly and completely defeated patriotism. I see a group of people so completely convinced Hillary Clinton was the enemy that they were willing to make common cause with an actual adversary power who was attacking their country to defeat her. To me, it matters whether the conduct violated the law only in the pedestrian sense of determining the available remedies for it and in guiding whether and how we might have to change our laws to prevent such conduct in the future. I don't know the right word for this pattern of conduct. It's not collusion although it may involve some measure of collusion. It's not coordination or conspiracy. 
But in Clinton, Democrats, and liberals, the Trump campaign saw a sufficiently irreconcilable enemy that it looked at Vladimir Putin and saw a partner. That may not be a crime, but it is a very deep betrayal. The counterintelligence dimensions of the entire affair remain a mystery. Because the Mueller investigation was born out of a counterintelligence investigation, there, are, there has been an enduring impression that it had both criminal and counterintelligence elements. I have assumed this myself at times. How these two very different missions integrated within the Mueller probe has been much discussed. The Mueller report answers this question, and the answer is actually striking, and from my point of view, alarming. The Mueller investigation was a criminal probe, full stop. It was not a counterintelligence probe. Mueller both says this directly and also describes how the intelligence, the counterintelligence equities were handled. Here's how Mueller describes his investigation. Quote, like a U.S. attorney's office, the special counsel's office considered a range of classified and unclassified information available to the FBI in the course of the office's Russia investigation and the office structured that work around evidence for possible use in prosecutions of federal crimes, unquote. A counterintelligence investigation is not structured around evidence for possible use in prosecutions of federal crimes. Mueller then answers the question of what happened to the counterintelligence components of the investigation. The FBI took responsibility for them. Quote, from its inception, unquote, Mueller writes, the, off, quote, the office recognized that its investigation could identify foreign intelligence and counterintelligence information relevant to the FBI's broader national security mission. FBI personnel who assisted the office established procedures to identify and convey such information to the FBI, unquote. The special counsel's office and the FBI counterintelligence division had regular meetings to facilitate this transfer of information. Quote, for more than the past year, unquote, Mueller goes on, quote, the FBI also embedded personnel at the office who did not work on the special counsel's investigation, but whose purpose was to review the results of the investigation and to send, in writing, summaries of foreign intelligence and counterintelligence information to FBI HQ and FBI field offices, unquote. The report deals only, Mueller says, with, quote, information necessary to account for the special counsel's prosecution and declination decisions and to describe the investigation's main factual results, unquote. In other words, the Mueller investigation was a criminal probe only. It had embedded FBI personnel sending back to the FBI material germane to the FBI's counterintelligence mission, but Mueller does not appear to have taken on the counterintelligence investigative function himself. This leaves me worried. After the bloodletting at the Bureau that saw the entire senior leadership replaced precisely as it was engaged with counterintelligence questions involving Trump world and Russia, who at, the, who at the Bureau now is going to push such questions? The incentive structure at the FBI cannot favor senior leadership carrying the ball on this. It also cannot favor individual agents allowing themselves to get assigned to matters that would put them in the president's crosshairs. So I worry about a counterintelligence gap. Mueller, the person with the independence to take this matter on, construed his role narrowly as a prosecutor, as a prosecutor, and set up a one-way street for counterintelligence information to go back to the FBI. And the FBI, the end, the entity with the mandate, has every incentive to play it cautious. It would be of 
It would be the deepest of ironies if the Mueller investigation showed evidence that the president had committed crimes and had committed impeachable offenses, and if he had painted a remarkable historical portrait of the relationship between Trump world and the Russian government, but if at the same time, the core counterintelligence concerns that gave rise to it and that have haunted the Trump presidency from the beginning went unaddressed. And that is the end of the article. Again, this is an article by Benjamin Wittes, published in The Atlantic, dated April the 29th, 2019. The title of the article is Five Things I Learned from the Mueller Report. A careful reading of the dense document delivers some urgent insights. Next thing I'm going to read were the articles impeachment articles of impeachment that were drafted by the House, I believe by the House Judiciary Committee. These are the three articles of impeachment that were drafted against Richard Nixon, which were voted on by the Judiciary Committee, which ultimately prompted Nixon's resignation. Everybody for, we forget because it was so long ago that Nixon that the House Judiciary Committee voted to impeach Nixon. The House, the full House of Representatives never voted on impeachment. Because Nixon resigned when the House Judiciary Committee voted past the, the three articles, and they did so in a very bipartisan manner. The Republicans in Congress, I believe in both the House and the Senate, went to Richard Nixon that night and urged him to resign. And Nixon did so. So there was Nixon was never impeached. There was no impeachment vote by the House of Representatives, and certainly there was never a trial of Nixon in the Senate. Nixon resigned before that ever happened. But these are the three articles of impeachment that were drafted. These are the actual articles themselves that I'm going to read. As you listen to these, think about our current circumstances. I know when I read them, there were certain parallels. There, you know, There's one that I don't think really applies, but I think the other two articles, uh, especially in light of the Mueller report, but also in, in light of events that are, current, that are currently occurring between uh, the standoff between the White House and the Congress, in particular the House of Representatives, in regards to a plethora of subpoenas and records requests and committee hearings and testimony before committee hearings by those in the White House and those in the executive branch. I think the, the parallels uh, between the Office of President of the United States and, to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States and in violation of his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithful, faithfully executed, has prevented, obstructed, and impeded the administration of justice in that on June 17, 1972, and prior thereto, agents of the Committee for the Re-Election of the President committed unlawful entry of the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee, Committee in Washington, District of Columbia, for the purpose of securing political intelligence. Subsequent thereto, 
Richard M. Nixon, using the powers of his high office, engaged personally and through his close subordinates and agents in a course of conduct or plan designed to delay, impede, and obstruct the investigation of such illegal entry, to cover up, conceal, and protect those responsible, and to conceal the existence and scope of other unlawful covert activities. This means the means used to implement this course of conduct or plan concluded one or more of the following. 1. Making false or misleading statements to lawfully authorized investigative officers and employees of the United States. 2. Withholding relevant and material evidence or information from lawfully authorized investigative officers and employees of the United States. 3. Approving, condoning, acquiescing in, and counseling witnesses with respect to the giving of false or misleading statements to lawfully authorized investigative officers and employees of the United States, and false or misleading testimony in duly instituted judicial and congressional proceedings. 4. Interfering or endeavoring to interfere with the conduct of investigations by the Department of Justice of the United States, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the House, the Office of Watergate Special Prosecution Force, and congressional committees. 5. Approving, condoning, and acquiescing in the surreptitious payment of substantial sums of money for the purpose of, of obtaining the silence or influencing the testimony of witnesses, potential witnesses, or individuals who participated in such unlawful entry and other illegal activities. 6. Endeavoring to misuse the Central Intelligence Agency and an agency of the United States. 7. Disseminating information received from officers of the Department of Justice of the United States to subjects of investigations conducted by lawfully authorized investigative officers and employees of the United States for the purpose of aiding and assisting such subjects in their attempts to avoid criminal liability. 8. Making or causing to be made false or misleading public statements for the purpose of deceiving the people of the United States into believing that a thorough and complete investigation had been conducted with respect to allegations of misconduct on the part of personnel of the executive branch of the United States and personnel of the Committee for the Re-election of the President, and that there was no involvement of such personnel in such misconduct, or 9. Endeavoring to cause prospective defendants and individuals duly tried and convicted to expect favored treatment and consideration in return for their silence or false testimony or rewarding individuals for their silence or false testimony. In all of this, Richard M. Nixon has acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president and subversive of constitutional government to the great prejudice of the law cause of law and justice and to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. Wherefore, Richard M. Nixon, by such conduct, warrants impeachment and trial and removal from office. Article 1 was adopted 27 by a vote of 27 to 11 by the Committee on the Judiciary of the House of Representatives at 7.07 p.m. on Saturday, July 27, 1974. Article 2. Using the powers of the office of the President of the United States, Richard M. Nixon, in violation of his constitutional oath faithfully to execute the office of President of the United States and, to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and in disregard of his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, 
has repeatedly engaged in conduct violating the constitutional rights of citizens, impairing, impairing the due and proper administration of justice, and the conduct of lawful inquiries, or contravening the laws governing agencies of the executive branch and the purpose of these agencies. This conduct has included one or more of the following. 1. He has, acting personally and through his subordinates and agents, endeavored to obtain from the Internal Revenue Service, in violation of the constitutional rights of citizens, confidential information contained in income tax returns for purpose not authorized by law, and to cause, in violation of the constitutional rights of citizens, income tax audits or other income tax investigations to be initiated or conducted in a discriminatory manner. 2. He misused the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Secret Service, and other executive personnel in violation or disregard of the constitutional rights of citizens by directing or authorizing such agencies or personnel to conduct or continue electronic surveillance or other investigations for purposes unrelated to national security, the enforcement of laws, or any other lawful function of his office. He did direct, authorize, or permit the use of information obtained thereby for purposes unrelated to national security, the enforcement of laws, or any other lawful function of his office. And he did direct the concealment of certain records made by the Federal Bureau of Investigation of electronic surveillance. 3. He has, acting personally and through his subordinates and agents in violation or disregard of the constitutional rights of citizens, authorized and permitted to be maintained a secret investigative unit within the office of the president, financed in part with money derived from campaign contributions, which, unlaw which unlawfully, unlawfully utilized the resources of the Central Intelligence Agency, engaged in covert and, un and unlawful activities, and attempted to prejudice the constitutional right of an accused to a fair trial. 4. He has failed to take care that the laws were faithfully executed faithfully executed by failing to act when he knew or had reason to know that his close subordinates endeavored to impede and frustrate lawful inquiries by duly constituted executive, judicial, and legislative entities concerning the unlawful entry into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee and the cover-up thereof and concerning other unlawful activities, including those relating to the confirmation of Richard Kleindienst, as Attorney General of the United States, the, electric, the electronic surveillance of private citizens, the break-in into the offices of Dr. Lewis Fielding, and the campaign financing practices of the committee to re-elect the president. 5. In disregard of the rule of law, he knowingly misused the executive power by interfering with agencies of the executive branch, including the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Criminal Division, and the Office of Watergate Special Prosecution Force of the Department of Justice, and the Central Intelligence Agency in violation of his duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. In all of this, Richard M. Nixon has acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president and subversive of constitutional government, to the great prejudice of the cause of law and justice, and to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. Wherefore, Richard M. Nixon, by such conduct, warrants impeachment and trial and removal from office. Article 2 was adopted by a vote of 28 to 10 by the Committee on the Judiciary of the House of Representatives the same day, July 27, 1974. Article 3. In his conduct of the office of President of the United States, Richard M. Nixon, contrary to his oath, faithfully to execute the office of President of the United States 
and to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and in violation of his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, has failed without lawful cause or excuse to produce papers and things as directed by duly authorized subpoenas issued by the Committee on the Judiciary of the House of Representatives on April 11, 1974, May 15, 1974, May 30, 1974, and June 24, 1974, and willfully disobeyed such subpoenas. The subpoenaed papers and things were deemed necessary by the committee in order to resolve by direct evidence fundamental, factual questions relating to presidential direction, knowledge, or approval of actions demonstrated by other evidence to be substantial grounds for impeachment of the president. In refusing to produce these papers and things, Richard M. Nixon, substituting his judgment as to what materials were necessary for the inquiry, interposed the powers of the presidency against the lawful subpoenas of the House of Representatives, thereby assuming to himself functions and judgments necessary to the exercise of the sole power of impeachment vested by the Constitution in the House of Representatives. In all of this, Richard M. Nixon has acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president and subversive of constitutional government to the great prejudice of the cause of law and justice and to the manifest injury of the people of the United States, whereby Richard M. Nixon, by such conduct, warrants impeachment and trial and removal from office. Article 3 was adopted by a vote of 21 to 17 by the Committee on the Judiciary of the House of Representatives, on July 27th, Final thing that I want to read is an article that can be found on the Real Real Clear Politics website, um, and it's written by A. B. Stoddard. A. B. Stoddard is a journalist, political journalist. If you watch cable news, you'll see her on a pretty regular basis. She's been on CNN, MSNBC. She's been on Fox. She used to be a uh, writer at the at the Hill but now she's on Real Clear Politics. She also has articles on a regular basis on thebulwark.com, and she periodically is also on their podcast, which I, which I highly recommend. This article by A.B. Stoddard is, was written on or published on April the 25th, 2019 on the Real Clear Politics website, and the title of the article is Trump GOP, or excuse me, Trump comma GOP won't act on election interference warnings. Foreign powers and domestic disruptors are already interfering in next year's presidential and congressional elections, and this week we learned what the likely response of the Trump re-election campaign will be. Bring it on. Two prominent Trump associates, Rudy Giuliani and Jared Kushner, both dismissed the impact of Russia's interference in the 2016 election, essentially telling those currently seeking to sow disinformation, quote, come on in, fellas, no big deal, unquote. What special counsel Robert Mueller characterized in his findings as a, quote, sweeping and systematic, unquote, effort by the Russian government to interfere 
and help elect Trump was, quote, a couple of Facebook ads, unquote, Kushner said Tuesday, adding that the investigation itself into a foreign attack on this nation's electoral process had done more damage to democracy. To Rudy, quote, there's nothing wrong, unquote, with accepting help from a foreign hostile foreign power. As a side note, Rudy Giuliani has been Trump's personal attorney for the latter part of the Mueller probe. Usually the, the, he's the most vocal attorney for Trump, essentially Trump's mouthpiece. Jared Kushner, of course, is Donald Trump's son-in-law, married to his oldest daughter, Ivanka Trump. And Kushner is essentially the secretary of everything. He has a very uh, wide and deep portfolio of responsibilities within the Trump White House. Back to the article. Some characterized Kushner's comments as unpatriotic, even treasonous. What they were, at best, was irresponsible. They were also false. According to the Mueller report, by election day, the Russian government was spending more than $1 million per month on its campaign and, by Facebook's account, reaching one-third of the U.S. population. The very hour that Kushner spoke at the Time 100 summit, NBC was reporting that Twitter had removed 5,000 accounts of bots attacking the Mueller investigation as the, quote, Russiagate hoax, unquote. They weren't Russian bots, but one connected to a pro-Saudi social media operation that formerly went under the name Arabian Veritas, which had claimed to be, quote, an initiative that aims to spread the truth about Saudi Arabia and the Middle East through social engagement, unquote. The escalating assault won't abate unless the U.S. government acts to stop it, and silence is an invitation. Kushner and Giuliani are practically asking out loud for help from ally or adversary. If Trump aided Bibi Netanyahu in his recent re-election, so much so that the Prime Minister just announced he wants to name a town in the Golan Heights after him, why won't the Israelis launch their own cyber offensive on his behalf along with the Russians and the Saudis? On Wednesday, the New York Times reported that the administration is incapable of protecting the country from another foreign cyber attack in our future elections because officials, knowing this upsets the president, not only don't discuss it with him, but can't proceed to establish a robust system of defenses. Kirsten Nielsen, whom Trump forced out as Homeland Security Secretary weeks ago, found her efforts to bolster the nation's cyber defenses stymied so repeatedly she eventually, quote, gave up on her effort to organize a White House meeting of cabinet secretaries to coordinate a strategy to protect next year's elections, unquote. Despite the conclusion of the administration's own intelligence officials that the Russian efforts are ongoing, were active in the midterm elections last fall, and will remain a threat next year, White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney told Nielsen not to bring it up around the president, according to the Times story. And while Chris Krebs, director of DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure, Infrastructure Security Agency, is providing assistance to state and local election officials to help scan their systems to protect databases, etc., there is no whole-of-government effort to mitigate the threat of disinformation and cyber attacks like hacking of the candidates and campaigns. Nothing has been coordinated among the NSA, DNI, CIA, and FBI, a mission that Nielsen believed was critical but was discouraged from creating. National Security Advisor John Bolton removed the position of cybersecurity coordinator at the White House last year. 
Meanwhile, besides the intelligence community's warnings about next year, a little-noticed Joint Intelligence Bulletin issued by both the FBI and DHS earlier this month reported that Russian reconnaissance and hacking in 2016 went beyond the 21 states reported in previous assessments. Quote, the FBI and DHS assess that Russian government cyber actors probably conducted research and reconnaissance against all U.S. states' election networks leading up to the 2016 presidential elections, unquote. Simon Rosenberg of the New Democrat Network, who worked with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee to combat these threats in the midterms, said we are not prepared for the attacks on an election that ostensibly began nearly four months ago when Democratic presidential candidates began their campaigns. Politico reported that, quote, sustained and ongoing, unquote, disinformation assaults are already t- already targeting the campaigns of Senators Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren, along with former Representative Beto O'Rourke. Rosenberg laid out three actions in a piece this month in Medium that would amount to first steps to protect elections. Paper ballots and audits protections against hacking and cyber attacks for federal candidates, and pledges to forego illicit campaign tactics. Protections, he said, should have been in place by now, but as of this week, there was no central figure of authority, chain of command, or plan. Trump's, den- quote, Trump's denial the Russia attack ever took place, unquote, he told Real Clear Politics, quote, has suppressed the normal immune response which would have kicked in to protect ourselves from future attacks. Bills have been blocked, common sense, ste- common sense steps not taken, some important government capacities have, been, has, have even been unraveled. All of it has left us unprepared for what is coming this election cycle, and, is, and it is important that both parties in Congress come together in the days ahead around a few simple, achievable things which can make it less likely foreign governments can once again manipulate our elections for their advantage." Unquote. Meanwhile, Republicans are AWOL with a host of reasons why they won't act. It's a media story. Their voters don't care. The Russian attack didn't affect the outcome of the election. The Russians have done this forever. The onus should be on the social media platforms anyway. Out on a limb alone is Senator Marco Rubio, who has co-sponsored the Deter Act with Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, no surprise, had no interest in putting it on the Senate floor in the last Congress, and its prospects have only grown more dim. In his statement about the Mueller report, Rubio made no mention of the president's misconduct, but focused on Putin's efforts to meddle in 2016. Quote, that Putin attempted to interfere in our elections should no longer be doubted by anyone. Sadly, there remain fringe voices that continue to deny what Putin did, unquote. Rubio's faint cry, alone in the GOP, isn't going, to pressure, isn't going to pressure the administration to act. The president is one of those fringe voices. Evan McMullen, a former CIA officer who ran for president in 2000, 2016 and now runs Stand Up Republic, penned a piece for NBC News calling for impeachment and proceedings on the basis that Trump quote, bears distinct responsibility for our failure to defend against Russia's hostility and take the steps necessary to deter future threats, unquote. But, McMullen told RCP, Trump's denial also puts more pressure on congressional Republicans to act. Quote, 
Sadly, most congressional Republicans have decided to take the political path of least resistance in staying silent, or worse, defending the president's conduct following the release of the redacted Mueller report and the specter of continued foreign information warfare attacks, rather than taking the tougher path of leadership. But they took an oath to support and defend the Constitution, and I believe they and the GOP will be measured in the years ahead by the degree which they kept the patriotic commitment kept that patriotic commitment at a time when American democracy was under threat, unquote. Again, this was an article published on April 25th, 2019 at realclearpolitics.com, written by A.B. Stoddard, titled Trump, GOP Won't Act on Election Interference Warnings. There's a plethora, especially over the last month, since the release of the Mueller report, there's been a plethora of activity involving the House of Representatives, and the Trump administration, a lot of threats. There's been a lot of posturing by Trump himself and those around him. Uh, the attorney general testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, a friendly venue given that the Republican, Republicans control the Senate. And the chairman of the, of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate is one Lindsey Graham, who has become the Orange Menace's greatest bootlicker at this point. Uh, the attorney general testified uh, before the Judiciary Committee, which was contentious at times, especially since three Democrats on the committee are also running for president. There's been subpoenas issued for Trump's tax returns. There's been subpoenas issued for a variety of things, the, in particular, the unredacted Mueller report, which has still not been presented to the Congress. Uh, the attorney general has refused to testify before the House Judiciary Committee, which is controlled by Democrats. A subpoena has not been issued yet, I don't believe, but it is forthcoming. All of these things are all of these uh, uh, disputes are going to end up in court. You also have a presidential election in 18 months. And at the moment, I believe 22 or 23 Democratic candidates for president including former Vice President Joe Biden, who just jumped in in the last couple of weeks, and whose poll numbers against the rest of the Democratic field are, are presently quite strong, and whose poll numbers against Trump himself are also quite strong. There's also the backdrop of a strong economy, although to what degree that is credited to the president or the president's policies is not super clear. You have strong, uh, you have very low unemployment, the lowest unemployment in 15 years as of, or 50 years, excuse me, as of uh, jobs numbers that came out last week, uh, GDP at 3.2% for, for the uh, first quarter. And you're starting to see incomes rise while you also have very low inflation. But you also have a trade war, uh, which is, could be escalating against, with China the consequences of which are not super clear, especially given the fact that the president of the United States likes to use tariffs as his primary weapon of choice while not realizing exactly how those tariffs work because he believes that imposing those tariffs, that those tariffs are actually paid by the countries of which, against which he's imposed them, as opposed to the reality, which is that those tariffs are actually paid by you and me. A tariff is essentially a tax on goods paid by American consumers. So there's a variety of things going on in a very tribal, increasingly tribal and hyper-partisan environment. And I can't tell you how the, these things are going to progress. I can just, all I can do is just sit back and watch and see what happens. But I would strongly encourage you, especially if you're interested in the findings of the Mueller report to help provide context for what's 
going to happen going forward. At some point, Robert Mueller is going to testify before Congress. As to when, where, and how, that is yet to be determined. But it's pretty clear that he has had a he has a difference of opinion with the attorney general and how the attorney general has interpreted his report or has presented his conclusions or his inter- or how he has presented his interpretations of Mueller's report to the public since Mueller submitted his report. There is also other factors going on, which I suddenly cannot think of. Needless to say that the submission of the Mueller report does not end things at all in any way, shape, or form. Um, this is actually, the Mueller report actually just ends one part of this saga and uh, another part is about to begin. I will give you my two cents worth for what it's worth. I think Donald Trump has committed impeachable offenses. Um, I think once you really get into the um, the details of the Mueller report itself, particularly on the obstruction side where 10 to 11 different incidents are documented, any one of which would, would be grounds for, for impeachment on their own collectively are exceptionally damning. There's also what I've read, you know, what I read to you in the Ben Wittes article in the Atlantic, Donald Trump clearly committed impeachable offenses. I think Donald Trump also broke the law. I think he, I think he committed crimes that the only saving grace that the only thing that's saving him is the fact that he's the president of the United States presently. And there's a DOJ guideline and it's the only thing, it's the only thing that's keeping him from being prosecuted, a DOJ guideline that says you cannot indict a sitting president, which makes it in Donald Trump's best interest to win re-election in 2020. There's also one other thing. There is a certain irony in regards to the obstruction of justice allegations against the president. Uh, Attorney General Bill Barr says that Donald Trump could not have committed obstruction of justice because Donald Trump didn't was not charged with or accused of committing or was not indicted or charged with committing an underlying crime. If he was not charged with any underlying crime, there's nothing, there's no investigation for him to, there's no way he can obstruct an investigation that did not yield a crime. However, presently, the Department of Justice is prosecuting Roger Stone, a former Trump confidant and associate to his 2016 campaign. One of the charges against Roger Stone is for obstruction of justice. However, Roger Stone has tried to argue since Bill Barr, you know, held his press conference, testified before the Senate and released his four page summary. Roger Stone has since argued before in the federal court that because he was not charged with an underlying crime, that he cannot be that he couldn't that he could not have committed obstruction of justice. He's basically taken Bill Barr's explanation or defense of Trump against the obstruction allegations and has tried to use it for his own purposes. U.S. attorneys for the Department of Justice have argued, ironically, that you do that there does not have to be an underlying crime to have a committed or attempted to commit obstruction of justice. So basically, U.S. attorneys are, have argued in the prosecution of Roger Stone the exact opposite of what Bill Barr has argued as a defense of Donald Trump against obstruction of justice. There is also evidently the, the, the Department of Justice guidelines regarding the application of or the, um, the application of the obstruction of justice uh, statutes 
also supports that there is, there does not have to be an underlying crime to have committed or to be charged with obstruction of justice. Also, you don't have to be successful at the obstruction in order to be charged with obstruction of justice. You could have tried and failed to obstruct justice, but still be prosecuted for obstruction. Also, in the last 48 hours, as I said, this podcast is being, this episode is being recorded on May the 7th, 2019. In the last 48 hours, some 600 former federal prosecutors uh, going back decades has submitted or signed an open letter disputing, outright disputing Bill Barr's interpretation of the obstruction of justice statutes and how they've been applied by the Department of Justice going back decades. The only person, the only two people or three people, I should say, the only three people who and who interpret have interpreted obstruction of justice the way Bill Barr has explained it as a defense of of Hare President is Bill Barr himself, Rudy Giuliani, and Donald Trump. Although Donald Trump really hasn't explained anything. So these are just some things that I've noticed. Trump committed impeachable offenses. Trump committed crimes. Trump should be impeached. Do I think the House of Representatives is going to impeach him? No. Why? Because the Senate will never convict. Even if Democrats win the Senate in 2020, they're not, they would need Republican help. And if Democrats are successful in removing Trump from office in 2020, then the whole thing is moot. But I do not, unless something dramatically changes, the House of Representatives is not going to impeach Trump if they cannot get a conviction in the Senate, which is impossible. The Senate is never, unless something dramatically changes, and it would have to be incredibly overwhelming evidence. We're talking, we're talking Nixon tapes level of evidence. Remember that the Republicans stood by Nixon up until the tapes got released, until the court ordered, the Supreme Court ordered that the tapes had to be turned over by the White House. Once that happened and everybody started to listen to, got to listen to them, including Republicans on the Watergate committee, that's when it ended. Especially when you had the recordings of Nixon explicitly ordering the CIA to interfere in the FBI's investigations. Up until that point, regardless of everything that the special counsel, the special Watergate counsel had found, everything that Judge Sirica had found in his court, what the Watergate commit, what the special committee, the special Watergate committee had found themselves, in spite of all of that, what, what Woodward and Bernstein had found, in spite of all of that, the Republicans still stood by Donald Trump, or not Donald Trump, Richard Nixon, until those tapes got released. And then when they heard it in Nixon's own voice, explicitly telling his subordinates to use the uh, the offices the offices of the exec- the various offices of the executive branch to obstruct justice to interfere in investigations that's when they uh, that's when they had to part company but it wasn't until then and absent something comparable to Nix- to the Nixon tapes it's unlikely that Republicans would abandon Trump now and if the Republicans aren't going to aren't going to convict him in the Senate, there's no incentive for the House of Representatives to impeach him. Instead, and I again, Nancy Pelosi continues to impress me by the day. She has wisely done her best to steer the House and the Democratic Party away from the impeachment fever, so to speak. What do you think if you're a, an Uber Trump fan? 
or you're an uber Trump hater. Tell me what you think. Email the show at I have questions podcast at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at I have so many pod. Uh, you can send me a DM. You can just send me a tweet. You can go to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. However you want to reach me, let me know what you think. Whether you agree with me, whether you disagree with me, whether you want to provide context or nuance or whatever on this episode or on any other episode that's occurred prior to. If you want to comment about the uh, the Star Wars mega set, let me know. Hit me up. I want to hear what you have to say. If you want to come on the show to talk about these things, I refer you to the open submissions policy for the podcast. If you want to be a guest on the show and talk about these things and have a dialogue or a conversation, or if you really just want to yell at me, I'm cool with that too. I'm married. I have two kids. I get yelled at a lot. I'm used to it. We can totally do that. I have a flexible, fragile male ego, if that makes any sense at all. But this has been, I have so many questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you. Good night, Cleveland.